Amen. So it starts out these first three words, Jeremiah chapter 8, at that time. So that's connecting us to the end of chapter 7, where it talks about the severe judgment that is announced that's coming for uh, the nation of Judah, the two southern tribes there. And in particular, the prophet saw in the valley of Hinnom that it was filled with corpses and rotting bodies that were going to be food for all of these, you know, scavenger birds that would feast upon them. So just this horrendous scene of death and destruction and judgment. So at that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. <clears throat> now, this is uh, like a final disgrace for uh, the people of Judah. Um, you know, the in particular, I mean, it's it's a disgusting thing to think that you would ever stumble upon the skeletal remains of a human being. Uh, that they would just be out in the open like that, not, you know, cared for in a, you know, a thoughtful, caring, respectful way. Uh, often when, um, you know, uh, a country would conquer uh, uh, another country, they would disgrace uh, the graves of uh, the countries that they had conquered. You know, they have these big sepulchers that were built to, to honor their former kings and their former princes, you know, and the prophets and the holy men and the idea that they would, you know, bring them out. It, it, it's associated, what's being said is associated with the death described at the end of chapter 7 and the fact that the corpses are just going to be left out, the death and the destruction combined with the conquering and the capture of the people as they're led away into slavery, there's no time for them to go through the process to clean up the battlefields and then the farther desecration of whatever you know graves and sepulchers might be there. So it's it's a final disgrace for these people who have lived such sinful lives. In verse two, it says, they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. So uh, this is God, um, you know, sort of adding insult to injury, not so much that it's his intention, but, you know, they have exposed themselves in these you know, sensual, provocative waves, uh, you know, out worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And God is saying, you know, it's sort of poetic or ironic that, you know, all of these celestial hosts that you worshiped, uh, when you're wiped out and dead, uh, your remains are going to be scattered out underneath the sun and the stars and the moon, uh, you know, that you worshiped. You know, had, had you worshipped me rather than the things that I created, this horrifying end would not have come to you. Uh, this 
practice, particularly by the Babylonians, but other nations did it. Uh, the Greek poet Horus, you may be ref, uh, familiar with, refers to the sepulchers of the rich, uh, the nobles being desecrated, and their bones being scattered uh, after warfare. So it's it's not an uncommon thing, but it it's an ultimate disgrace. The Jews, particularly uh, to this day, the Orthodox Jews have a practice that uh, you're buried within 24 hours of your death. They, they want to see you uh, washed, cleansed, ceremony finished, and you uh, put into your final resting place as a respect to you and your remains uh, that you wouldn't have anything like this happen to you. So the fact that, you know, God is saying, this is going to be your ultimate end. The people that are wiped out in the Valley of Hinnom and the graves and sepulchers that you've honored and respected, uh, that's all going to be laid bare before the sun, moon, and stars that you worshipped. 8.3, uh, then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family who remain in all the places where I have driven them. So the Lord says the Lord of hosts. So uh, the prophet is saying that once this destruction has come and once they've experienced this judgment, the people who might escape the destruction and then the capture and being carted off into captivity, death would be better for them. That, that you know, the idea of, oh, we're going to, you know, build our little fortress and hide out and escape all of these horrible things. The Lord is saying the land is going to be so devastated. Uh, the threats are still going to be in your environment. You're not going to want to live here. And the people really did. Uh, once this all unfolds, they fled the country. They, they fled like refugees, uh, you know, homeless, no land, no food, uh, no ability to care for themselves. They ended up being persecuted as foreigners in all of the surrounding nations. And, and this ties into what the Lord has said from the very beginning with Abraham, you know, the, the very start of the construction of the nation. He's saying, I have a land. It's, it's not your land. It's not the Jews' land. It's not the Canaanites' land. I have a land. And I'm going to take you and eventually bring you out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring you into that land. You're going to conquer your enemies, and you're going to worship me. If you fail to worship me, then what's going to happen is I'm going to lift my protection off you. The enemies that surround you are going to invade. They're going to conquer you and drive you out of the land. I'm only going to allow those to remain in the land that worship me. You know, to me, I think that's a, a, at least a, a segment of what's continuing to go on inside the nation of Israel today. You know, they have such tremendous problems and their neighbors are so difficult. And, you know, the Lord gives them victory and blessing. Along, but, but the conflict that they're continuously engaged in is the fact that their hearts aren't turned towards the Lord. You know, and, I, and I'm not even talking about uh, you know, so much the idea of, you know, what we say as Messianic Jews. I'm talking about, for the most part, the people that are inside Israel are secular. They're, they're non-religious. You know, they, they look at uh, the Bible 
you know, the Old Testament, the belief of the prophets as, yeah, that's, you know, like children's books. Those are the stories, you know, from our past that our fathers used to tell. They, they don't look at them, you know, with any reverence and regard as being God's word. You know, by and large, the bulk of the people within Israel, they don't have a, a relationship with God. And so they continue to suffer because God said, if you don't worship me, I'm going to drive you out of my land. Yes, I've given it to you as a people, as an internal heritage, because that's me claiming you as mine and bringing you in. You're not going to worship. You're not going to follow me. Then you'll be driven out as a result. So even those that might escape the death and the battles who somehow hidden or survived through the process, he's saying death is going to be better. Because God's driving his people out of the land as a form of punishment that they would repent and come to him in right standing and in right relationship. Uh, 8 verse 4. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? The the question he's asking, right, the statement he's making is, when someone uh, falls down, then the automatic reaction is that they would stand back up. I, I mean, you know, if you've forgotten to tie your shoe or it's come untied and you trip over your shoelace and you go all the way to the floor, you don't just lay there and act like, well, you know, what can I do now? I've fallen down. You know, the, the automatic response is that you would stand back up. Whatever might trip you, you're going to automatically stand back up. If you're going the wrong direction, right, and you realize it, I don't know if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of realizing, I am on a one-way street going the wrong direction. I mean, you immediately look for an opportunity to turn around and go the right way. You don't just go, well, you know, who cares? (laughs) No one does that. I mean, even if you're like locked in, blocked in, uh, you know, I'm going to make it to the other end of the street. There's nothing else I can do at this point. You have it in your heart. I'm going the wrong direction. You you meet somebody coming the opposite way. You realize I'm on a one-way street and you're going to put it in reverse and back up. You know you're the one going the wrong direction. That's what he's painting here is there are some obvious occasions in life where if you fall down, you would automatically stand back up. If you're going the wrong direction, you would automatically turn around. You know, somebody, you want to go to John's house? Sure. And you head off to your right. And, you know, shortly after that, somebody says, John's house is not this. It isn't? No, it's that. Well, then let's turn around. And you go the right direction. There, there's an automatic response to certain things. And, and that's what the prophet is saying. On behalf of the Lord is, you know, Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? If you go in the wrong direction, wouldn't you automatically turn around? Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem, in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. (laughs) It's, It's as foolish as, you know, because of pride, You trip yourself and now you're laying face down on the floor 
and somebody finally says, are you going to get up? And you're like, leave me alone. You know, I'm staying right here. I'm going to hold right on to this stupid position. You, you know, it's, it's an obvious thing. You've backslidden. You've gone the wrong direction. Aren't you going to turn around? And in sinful pride of leave me alone. I'm not, you know, who are you to correct me? You're laying face down in the middle of the room. You've tripped and fallen. You should get, no, I'm not going to. And, and that's what, you know, the Lord is seeing. That's in fact what everyone is seeing is Israel has gone the wrong way. Israel has stumbled and fallen and they refuse. They, it's just childish pride of we will not turn. We will not stop Max. We chose this. We're going to hold fast to the deceitfulness and refuse to return. The most blatant uh, experience I've ever had with this uh, was a woman years ago who uh, just for pride and greed, literally those two things, she was divorcing her husband in order to just take from him. She just, she had literally made the decision. We learned it all later that she was, she had married this man for the sole purpose of taking him for what he had for his money. And, and, you know, professing to be a Christian, we met with her and sat down and we poured over the word of God. And, you know, we had proven out that the word of God is saying, this is wrong. There's no reason. There's no reason for you to not reconcile in this marriage. We, we can, the problems that are here are not big. The problems that are here can be rectified and you can have a very fulfilled life. By fixing this marriage, not going to happen. There had been no adultery, no, it's just pride and greed. She's going to divorce this man. Professing to be a Christian, we've poured over the word of God. And I'm literally coming to this final place where I say right here, see, this is saying that you, you have to do this. That God has shown you grace and you need to be forgiving him. And you have to work to restore and repair this relationship. And now that she's seen it, she just stares at it for a minute and then shakes her head and says, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not going to do that. That was the most blatant experience I've ever had of showing somebody how wrong they are and having them just say, no, I'm not going to. Yeah, I've stumbled. I'm not getting up. Yeah, I'm going the wrong direction. I will not turn around. And she did it. She went all the way through with the process, heartbreak, sorrow. I mean, any of us that's been through those types of challenges inside a marriage knows, you know, throw it in the towel, pull the plug, that's not going to lead to fulfillment. You know, you're so much better off to fight for what you can, right? Even if we haven't and we've perhaps gone through the pain of divorce, you know, looking back now, so many regrets are expressed about, oh, if I'd only tried. Oh, if I'd only, oh, if I could have only. The Lord here, these people, nope, not going to. I'm going to hold on to the deceit, going to refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into battle. You know, horses that are trained for battle, they, they, when they hear the clamor 
of battle, they get excited. They, 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 that's a thrill. They want that. And they will rush in to it. They don't avoid. They don't turn away. They're not frightened by the opportunity. They rush into the battle. That's what their training has taught them. You know, and here, this is a nation that enjoys its sin and recognizes now recognizes the coming destruction, right? Because the ten northern tribes have heard all of these same warnings. They've experienced the same crushing that is being promised to the two southern tribes. They know what's coming and they're saying, no, I'm not going to turn around. Going to rush into this like an animal that's trained to go into battle and experience whatever destruction and you know carnage may be there. I'm, I'm going into that. It's foolishness to say the least. Now this statement in seven, even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times and the turtle dove, the swift and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Now, uh, Charles Spurgeon actually uh, developed a sermon titled Migratory Birds. Uh, he started that whole sermon by saying, we shall mark these migratory birds and set the wisdom of their instinct in contrast with the folly of mankind. Think about that. We're going to look at these birds that migrate and we're going to hold them and their instinctive wisdom in contrast to the stupidity of the human race. There's many things that he says throughout that sermon, and if you get the opportunity to look up Charles Spurgeon's sermon titled Migratory Birds, it's, it's really great. But he makes four points in the sermon. You might want to make note of them. He says that migratory birds know when to come and go. You know, here, the prophet is saying, you know, these birds, the stork, the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow, they know when it's time to go. They know when it's time to come to travel in their migration. So Spurgeon makes the point that migratory birds know when to come and when to go. His second point is that migratory birds know where to go. Just by instinct, they know where to go. Third point was that migratory birds, by some strange instinct, also know the way to go. So not just the destination, they know the whole course of how to get there in the process. And then his last point was that migratory birds show their wisdom by actually going to the sunny land. You know, they, they know where to go <clears throat> to the comfort and the ease and the provision that the Lord has for them. Rather than in you know staying in the cold harsh difficulty of sin like a human being might do they understand god has provision for me and they travel to that provision uh, how contrasting it is that human beings uh, you know don't even learn from an animal that's as simple as a migratory bird as i read that uh, sermon again <clears throat> i was struck 
with a remembrance of a very simple verse uh, we probably all know. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. How poetic that, that you know, over and over again, we see that the animal kingdom and nature itself uh, obeys a wisdom that exceeds uh, the human race. It's a, it's a sad commentary on who we are as a people. Uh, continuing in Jeremiah chapter 8, looking at verse 8, the prophet says, How can you say we are wise? The law of the Lord is with us. Uh, that was their their claim. We, we have the law of the Lord. You know, all these pagan nations around us, uh, they don't have the law of the Lord. You know, we, we have... Leviticus, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we have the law of the Lord. You know, we, we have wisdom. We are clearly wise because as a nation, we have the law of the Lord with us. Look, he says in verse 8, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. So Jeremiah is telling the nation that not everyone who studies and teaches God's word is true. Just because they've got a title next to their name, pastor, right? Just because they've got, you know, a title, you know, in their life, Christian, doesn't mean that they're actually following God's word, right? I, I remember Barack Obama mockingly saying of Christians who were insisting we need to return to our Christian heritage in this nation, we need to return to following Christianity as the foundation of our belief system here in the States. And he mockingly said, well, whose interpretation should we listen to? You know, uh, Pastor Al Sharpton or Pastor James Dobson, you know, to which all of us screamed James Dobson, you know what I'm saying? I mean, right, because these false preachers, these false teachers are leading people astray. They're leading them into destruction. And that needs to be voiced clearly and loudly here's the prophet saying you know look the false pen of the scribes certainly works falsehood all you need to do is examine god's word right we don't have to sit around and debate about well whose interpretation should we listen to nobody's interpretation let's let the word of god comment on the word of god and comment on the interpretation Right? Because all we've got to do is if someone says homosexuality is not a sin, all we've got to do is turn over to Corinthians and say, but right here it says that it is. It doesn't matter what the common opinion that everyone has voted on is. The truth of God's word declares the truth of God's word. You know, the pen of the false scribe produces falseness. It's an unfortunate thing our nation is doing. Wise men... Verse 9, are ashamed, they are dismayed, and taken behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so that wis so what wisdom do they have? They've rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they have? That's a very important question in all of the scripture. Until you get used to where that verse is, you might want to put a little bookmark there that sticks out and keep coming back here until you remember where that verse is, and it's ingrained in your heart and mind. 
because our culture is very actively engaged in the process of rejecting God's word. And, and then they declare themselves wise, right? The question that's stated right there, since you've rejected God's word, what wisdom do you have, right? We know in this room, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't have that, then, you know, you might have knowledge. You might know stuff, but that doesn't equal wisdom. You know, simply because you have an education and you've learned things, that doesn't make you a wise person. Many of us have met people who have little to no education. And yet, right, as it's been said, the common sense is not so common anymore. They have just a common wisdom. They, they may not have that much education, not, may, may not have that much knowledge, but they've got a common sense about themselves. Wisdom doesn't come just from learning. You have to know who the Lord is. When a person rejects God and his word, as it says right there in verse 9, what kind of wisdom do they have? As I prayed about this, the verse that I came up with was James chapter 3, Verse 15, which actually answers that outright. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic. There is a supposed wisdom that the world points to and holds to and promotes, but it's not biblical and it's not godly. What is it? Well, it's earthly and it's sensual. It's of the feelings. It's of the emotion. And ultimately, it's demonic. It's literally from the pit of hell. It ascends up from hell into the hearts and minds of men, out of the mouths and into the ears and into the culture, rather than coming down from above through his word into the eye, into the mind, out of the mouth, into the ears, into the culture. There is a wisdom that comes from beneath. We need the wisdom that comes from above, not the one that comes from the earth. 8 begins by saying, verse 10 says, it starts by saying, Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Now, now put that together, right? They've rejected God and his word and thereby his wisdom, therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Because they did not hold on to God and his word as valuable, then they would lose what was most valuable to them, their families and their possessions that they had worked so hard for. That's going to be stripped away from them. God is owning it and saying, I, I will give their wives to others. But in the end, ultimately, it's because they have given their wives away. They've given their inheritance away because they heard very distinctly, very clearly from the Lord for centuries that if they abandon the good, right, and proper worship of the Lord, then they would be rejected by the Lord also and driven from the land. So they've done this to themselves. You know, the Lord doesn't shy away from saying, yeah, I'm, I'm involved in this happening to you. But ultimately, you know, it's what he's saying there in the Old Testament about today I lay before you blessings and curses you choose. It's about your choice. 
It isn't that the Lord is looming, waiting for the opportunity where he could strike and harm and hurt. It's a matter of you're going to reap what you've sown. You're going to experience exactly what you've planted and produced in your life. Now, 8 continues in verse 10 by saying, Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Covetousness and falsehood. Regardless of how religious they are, right? They, they make this great claim of, oh, well, we have the law of God. And let's be very, very clear. We have the word of God. And, and let's be very, very clear about Calvary Chapel, and in particular, Calvary Chapel down east. Is this not the earmark of what we say and who we are? We hold to the word of God. We teach the word of God verse by verse. All we have the word of God is our heart simultaneously filled with covetousness and deceit. Mark yourself with caution. Because if we're constantly being influenced by the commercials and the commercialism and the desire for what somebody else has or what we can possess, right? How much does materialism permeate our culture? If, if our motivation and drive is to have and to own and to possess, there's a great danger in that. There's a deceitfulness in covetousness. I mean, if you haven't figured it out, we've talked about it endlessly, but if you haven't had it finally ingrained in your brain, you know, again, commercialism, commercials are covetousness. You don't have this. Oh, don't you need it? Oh, don't you want it? You know, the, the, pre, the constant presentation is, come on, buy it. Don't you want it? That's what our culture is all about. Everywhere around us, our culture is engaged in that, right? <clears throat> How often did our parents say to us when we were younger, you know, do you really need that or do you just want it? Right? I, I need this. I need to have this. Do you really need it? You know, I, I can remember hitting that seventh, eighth grade, you know, level of, of uh, you know, thinking that you had to be cool. You know, the, the final understanding of, hey, I've got to, you know, achieve acceptance somehow. And I came from a family where, you know, we would iron on and sew on patches on the knees of your pants because, they were still good. You're just a young, rambunctious boy who's destroyed those perfectly good bands. So let's some, put some patches on those knees. Oh, you can't go to school with patches on your pants. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You know, the, the covetousness, the commercialism of our culture. I didn't need new pants. I had perfectly fine pants. But I couldn't wear those pants in front of the other people. Because I would lose stats, you know, the wickedness in my young heart that wanted to be befriended by the world, right? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know, so much of our culture is engaged in materialism. We don't even recognize it. The church doesn't even recognize it. You, know, you, you gotta, even within the churches, we promote it. You know, the, the buildings and the status and, you know, what the culture, we, everybody's got to, oh, we're the uncool church in town because we're not doing all the programs and we don't have all the cool 
stuff, sinful hangups that we have. It's, it's an unfortunate thing here as the Lord looks to them and says, you know, you're going to lose it. Why? Because you, from, the, from the greatest to the least of you, you're given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Now, there's nothing wrong with having things. Nothing wrong with that. The wrong is when it leads us away from our relationship with the Lord. The evidence that it has, the falsehood. Fake hypocrisy that follows in. You know, I'm not encouraging us all to show up here next week with patches on our pants. I'm not saying anything like that. But, but the deceptiveness that comes into the heart through covetousness. Oh, we have to guard our hearts against that. It creeps in so easily. Now, uh, these passages that we've just read and then the few verses following, they're actually repeating what the Lord said in Jeremiah ch uh, chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, about everyone being corrupt and about uh, this healing slightly that we're going to hear next. I just want to point it out while we're right in the midst of it that it must be extremely significant if the Lord is going to take two substantial chunks of chapter 6 and now chapter 8 and basically say the same thing twice, right? I mean, the prophet Jeremiah, is it's, it's not like, you know, years have passed since he's written chapter 6 and, you know, now he gets to chapter 8 and thinks, you know, that would be a really good thing to say. Why don't I say that right here? You know, when Jesus stops and says, verily, verily, you want to pay attention to what follows, truly, truly. And he then gives us a statement. You want to pay attention when the prophet says something almost verbatim, twice, just two chapters apart, pay close attention. Verse 11, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Now, before I move on, I've raised three daughters, and I'm a pushover, man. When it comes to little girls, they can pretty much run my life. You know, I just, I, I just, I have a hard time being as stern as I need to. I can do it, and you know, when they've pushed the buttons long enough, and you can see this is turning into a mess. You got to put your foot down, and you got to toe the line. But, but little girls, oh, and the, hey. Little girls in need, little girls in trouble, I'll do everything I can. Move heaven and earth to try and take care of them. Even once they've grown up, right? Those little girls that have grabbed the attention and the heartstrings of a father, they, they can move us, can they not? This daughter, right? The Lord is putting this personification to the situation. There's a daughter, and we're going to see a few references uh, toward the close of this chapter about a daughter, a daughter in need, a daughter crying out, a daughter that, you know, is wounded. That needs to move your heart. You, you need to think about that in that light, that there is a good, perfect, heavenly father that wants to take care of this daughter, that wants to care for the daughter. And she's dramatically injured. Oh, that stinks, dads, huh? Right? I, I, uh, 
I had my first daughter, Christian. She was an infant, and she was in one of those little walkers, had a little bar that went up over the top and had like a few little toys that hung down, you know, Mickey Mouse and I don't know what, just rings and things for them to play with right in front of them. And you could pull the two tabs on the side and fold the bar back and it would be behind them. And then you could talk to them and play with them and put things on the tray. You've maybe even had one like that. Well, on this particular evening, uh, I was working with my wife in the kitchen preparing dinner and I'm going back and forth between, you know, cooking and helping with dishes and just following whatever orders my wife has given me to playing with Christian. And each time I step away, I'll put the, the bar up and help Lori and then come back and put the bar down. On this one time, <clears throat> Lori needed my attention and I put that bar back up and I turned around to step forward and help my wife and Christian is screaming bloody murder behind me. And I turn around and I've locked her finger into that bar and my heart just sank. And the worst part of it was that I knew the only way to save her from the circumstances was open that lock, pull it away and fold the bar back down. And I don't mean to just be graphic, but it, I knew it was going to further injure her finger, pulled her little fingernail right out. I was devastated. I just spent the rest of the evening sitting with her in the living room, tending to that injury and comforting her. I was broken hearted for what I had done to my daughter. There's a severely injured daughter here in this picture. And there are people, you know, the daughter of my people, You've healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. You know, this is this is like the finger ripped off, the you know, the fingernail ripped out, the massive injury, and just doing the shh. It's not doing anything. It's not taking care of the injury. It's chapter six and chapter eight, the Lord is repeating this. The people who should have been there. Calling people to repentance. Calling the daughters of Israel into right relationship with God are instead, right? You know, the description I think I gave when we were in chapter 6 was like the grandfather that would just blow on the wound. You know what I'm saying? They got some massive skid mark where they were riding their bike or whatever. and The pavement has taken a part of their body off and you're just blowing. What does that do? Absolutely nothing. It doesn't even cool the burn or the sting within the situation. It just lets the child think you're trying to do something for them. You know, it might get their mind off from it. The pain, the injury is still going to be there. And that's what the Lord is saying. You were responsible and you had the capabilities of caring for the massive injury that my daughter had. And you just comforted her a little. You've failed at your job. You haven't done any of what you are supposed to do. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. <clears throat> Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations? No, is the answer, with an exclamation point. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. They weren't even embarrassed by it. That's, that's always disturbing to me. 
when I have to have the unfortunate experience of sitting down with someone who's in the midst of, you know, like sin. And as you talk to them, they're not even ashamed of it. They, they don't even recognize, you know, that this is a problem. It, it's a ridiculous level. I, I remember sitting with a man years ago, I might have even described this recently, who he eventually destroyed his whole life of pornography. And I mean, uh, this man lost his wife, lost his children, lost his home, lost his job, ended up sitting in a police station for days, pouring over the content of his computer to prove that every single image that was on his computer was not, in fact, of children who were underage. Embarrassment beyond what you can imagine. Months before that happened to him, I was, I was talking to him about his problem with pornography. His wife was already aware. We were just pleading with him to stop this whole process. He literally said to me, well, at times, you know, I just have difficulty staying awake. So, you know, I just view it to, you know, stimulate myself and keep myself awake. No embarrassment. He, he's got this level of cavalier approach. Like, yeah, no big deal. You know, like it's a cup of coffee. When it's a deadly spiritual, emotional, physical poison that ended up destroying him. Destroying him. That's where these people are at. You know, my daughter, the nation of Israel, has this massive wound. And you're acting like, you know, we can just say peace. Everybody be quiet. Everybody calm down. It's all going to be fine. The Babylonians are on their way. Their destruction is coming. You don't even blush about it. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. These leaders that should have been, they're going to be amongst the ones that die. There will be a group that is taken away and held in captivity, but those ones will be purified through the process of punishment. The ones that were corrupting and not correcting, I'm going to get rid of those, is what the Lord is saying. You should have been doing your job better. <clears throat> 8.13, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. Remember how before the Lord has talked about the nation and how there will be a remnant and how there will be a few grapes left on the vine and how there will be a few leaves that do not wither, right? The Lord always has those that he keeps and reserves and protects and holds for future, not so amongst these. That should have been the leaders, should have been the teachers, should have been the ones correcting. Instead, they're the corruptors, the false teachers. And he's saying, we're not going to leave any of those. We're going to strip that, that vine bare. There's not going to be anything left. We're not going to have any of its posterity left over in order for it to corrupt the people again. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to purge them out completely. Nothing will be left when I'm done. 8.14, why do we sit still, assemble yourselves, and let us enter the fortified cities, and let us be silent there. So this is a big change of subject and voice. For the Lord our God has put us to silence 
and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. So we've heard the voice of the Lord, we've heard the voice of the prophet, and now we're hearing the voice of the people who are saying, when the judgment comes, we're just going to hang our heads and find a fortified place to try and survive because we've got nothing to say. Because we've been warned. We've been told. So we're just going to tuck tail and run and hope for the best. And that's all you can do. When when the Lord is given every opportunity, you know, to turn around and, uh, you know, of course, by the time this comes about and the judgment finally falls on them, it's too late. So it's a shame that they have to have that experience. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, there was trouble. The snorting of horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of their strong ones. But they came and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. These poor people that have listened to the false teachers and the false prophets, uh, they looked to the false promise of peace. Instead, the earth is going to shake and be destroyed from the sheer number of horses that arrive in the army that's going to attack them. Uh, It's recorded uh, both on the account of uh, Gideon when he is called by the Lord that when the Midians come into the land, they just destroy the land for the number of people in their company. That when they move through, everything is just ruined after they've passed just because there are so many of them passing through the land. They're not ripping things up and destroying things purposely so much as it is just the sheer volume of people is destroying everything as they move through the land. And that's what's being said here. False prophets are acting like, everything, calm down. Everything's going to be fine. You just, you can have your best life now. Just, you know, hold on to the promises of God and the destruction comes. And and it's so powerful that just the the magnitude of the army that arrives destroys it's not even the fighting or just the magnitude of the army that arrives destroys the land and makes it ruin for them to occupy 17 behold i will send serpents among them vipers which cannot be charmed and they shall bite you says the lord so you're going to be killed by the venom of snakes also the false prophets convince the people They would be fine and find a way out of the judgment of God. And God is saying, no, I'm going to be so thorough in the process that you're even going to experience infestations of snakes that you won't be able to capture them or get rid of them or charm them. You know, some people want to say that's a figurative thing or a literal thing, but either way, it's literal in what it does to them. You know, whatever is meant, be it some figurative sense of snakes or a literal sense of of snakes, it is their death and their destruction which comes in the end. So it doesn't matter. You know what you're going to experience is is death and destruction. Now eight eighteen says, "I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter. Remember all I did to give you that idea of the daughter earlier, right?" 
again, those of us that have raised daughters, if you're at one end of the house and you hear her shrill voice at the other end, right, and, and your parent brain does that thing where you know that's not anger, that's not frustration, that's nothing but a cry for help. That's need, that's real pain. I need to, Nothing can get in your way, right? You're going to plow over whatever is, but you're going to hurt yourself getting to her. The daughter cries out in pain. You're going to do what you can to get her. And the Lord is saying, this is going to be such a heartbreak because the pain, the painful cry of the daughter isn't even going to be in a place that's accessible. She's going to be in a foreign land. She's going to be taken far away. Some of us have experienced that. Well, we've got it in our mind where, yeah, I'm making trouble for myself, but I've got these things I can rely upon. I've got these people I can rely upon. And then it all comes home to roost, as they say, and we're alone and we're in a place of anguish and pain and no one could even possibly get to us to help. That's exactly what's coming for these people. They've rejected God and now they find themselves in a foreign land being mercilessly persecuted by their captors. The cry of the daughter is going to come from a far country. And then the resulting emotion is not the Lord in Zion, is not her king in her. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their foreign idols? The summary of God saying, I'm not the one doing this. You've done this. Yes, this is horrifying. Yes, you're in pain, but it's a result of what you've done. I haven't rejected you. Isn't God on the throne? Isn't God in Zion? Well, in fact, he is. But you guys are all now in captivity in Babylon because you worship the gods of the Babylonians. So you lifted my hand of protection off and you, you forced me away from yourself. And then those enemies came, took you captive, and now you're back in their land. You know, now that you're experiencing that pain, you're acting like, where is God? Same place he's ever been. He's not moved at all. His arm is not short. His ear is not deaf, right? Your iniquity has separated you from God, as the scripture tells us. So really tragic. This statement in verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Now, this is really interesting. It only has the blatant, obvious truth for the people of this time who were the farmers of this land. It's two parts. Harvest are the things that they've planted. So that's like the grain crops that are going to come up. And then the summer being ended is when they would harvest the fruit trees and the things that grew naturally. So even if, right, you know, something happens, blight or hail or something destroys the crops in the field, well, then you've also got the end of the summer uh, where you can go out and get the fruits uh, that would have grown naturally. And what's being said is both of those things have been stripped away. You've got nothing. So now you're headed into winter and you have no provision for yourself. That was a terrifying thought for these farmers. You know, they, they always had that, right, that first and second, the former and the latter harvest to rely upon. And the Lord is saying, you got none of that for yourselves now. 
you know, the plagues have come and the captors have come and they have pillaged what you had and you're all being taken captive and hauled away into slavery. Uh, any of us that have rebelled against the Lord know, right? Like I talked about moments ago, you have that thing in your mind, like, yeah, yeah, it's bad, but I can always rely upon this. Yeah, yeah, you know, I know I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I can always fall back on this. And then as you go to lean into it, it evaporates right in front of you. You know, something just sucks the air right out of the room and you're left with nothing. If you, if you aren't reliant upon the Lord and you're reliant upon those things, you suddenly find yourself in the place like Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount was saying, you know, the man who builds his life upon these teachings of mine is like the man who builds his house on the rock. You know, the storms come and he remains. The person who does not refuses to. It's like the person who builds on sand and the storms of life come and the whole structure falls down. And how great is that fall? If we're not reliant upon the Lord truly within our person, then the destruction, when it comes, when the tests come, the failure is complete. Closing it out, verse 21. The hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Now, this is the prophet speaking. It's the heart of the Lord, but this is truly Jeremiah's mind. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? In Gilead, apparently, the way this is written, there was a literal healing salve or a balm that was made from, some say a plant, others say a tree, but, you know, something that grew naturally that was soothing and aromatic and healing in its, in its nature and in its properties. And, and the Lord is basically saying, you know, you're the people of this, this healing bomb. You don't have any of that now. You know, and now just move strictly over into the spiritual sense of things. You're the people of my word. You're the people that have my law. You're the people that have my promises. You don't have any of that working in your life now. Now that the Babylonians have kicked down your door, you know, the gods that you used to. Think about this, you guys. Think about this right now. <clears throat> Our culture that's so enamored with philosophy our culture that's so enamored with the teachings of Eastern mysticism. Those philosophies, those gods, they're all founded in Hinduism and Buddhism and all of this Eastern mystical sense of millions, pantheons of gods that are not the God of the scripture. The church, the church and its present fascination with philosophy over the word of God. It's ridiculous. You know, when the crisis comes, you can guarantee God is going to be saying the same thing to the occupants of church buildings. He's going to be saying, how much is your philosophy helping you right now? How much is the enlightenment of Buddha, you know, assisting you right now? How much is the reading of the Shasta helped you? How much has your studying Muhammad lent anything to you? If we know who the one true living God is, our hearts need to be firmly affixed to him. Nothing else. Nothing else. 
because the trials and the tests are coming. And here, you hear the voice of the prophet who is thoroughly pained by the fact that he's delivering this message nonstop and the people aren't listening to him. And as a result, they're all going to go through this destruction. That's the heart of God that you're hearing in the heart of the prophet, which should be the heart of the pastor. The one who leads, the one who teaches, the one who holds accountable. This is why the author of Hebrews said, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would not, or that would be unprofitable for you, rather. It needs to be. That one, those that are leading us are teaching us straight from God's word because they're living it. And then within that, we as a people are submitting to that and letting it work in our lives so we don't have to experience the pain that is going to come to those that have rejected God's word and God's wisdom. Amen? Amen. So we'll pick up with chapter 9 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Forgive me for all my sniffling and snuffling. Father, I thank you for your word and its great promises to us. Help us to be on the right side of submission. Submission to you, Lord. Submission to your word. Obedience to what it is you have and have to say to us and for us. Fill us with your spirit that we could experience your love the way that you had intended. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.